Did you know that you can listen and subscribe to the Catholic Gateway Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and most other podcast apps? Just search for Archdiocese of St. Louis to find us, or you can always invoke St. Anthony. Then make sure to rate the podcast and share us with your friends. We really appreciate five-star ratings. Remember, your guardian angel is watching you. The parish likes to, to look at kind of the bigger picture. A priest is an altar priest. They just go, go, go. In the zeal full of Jesus Christ. There is compassion for poor people. And it has this beautiful historic church. Heaven coming down to earth. Thanks be to God. From the Rome of the West, this is the Catholic Gateway Podcast, your audio gateway into the Archdiocese of St. Louis. On each episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast, we'll tell the stories about the interesting people, places, and events that make up the Archdiocese of St. Louis. We'll also give an update on Catholic news, courtesy of the reporters from the St. Louis Review and Catholic St. Louis Magazine, the official publications of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. So with trust in the Holy Spirit, let's begin. At a special event in early 2017, about 100 people gathered at the Cardinal Regali Center in Shrewsbury to see something, well, amazing. I'm kind of leaving here in a sense of awe, and I'm so happy that I came today because I didn't know what to expect. And now that I've come to uh, see it and see the presentation, um, I'm just kind of leaving here in wonder and awe and realize... uh, you know, that it's just, it was just great. That's John Davis, a parishioner at Our Lady of Providence. John and his wife Susan had come to see the heritage edition of the St. John's Bible. Now, if this were just any ordinary Bible, that would not be news. But this is no ordinary Bible we're talking about. Hello and welcome to the Catholic Gateway Podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Jones. On today's episode, you'll learn about the St. John's Bible, what it is, and how it came to be. If you haven't seen it yet, the goal of this podcast is to get you interested enough to see it, really to experience it, for yourself. Visit archstl.org Bible for information about the Bible, including dates and locations where it will be on display in St. Louis throughout the remainder of 2017. In short, the St. John's Bible is a visual masterpiece. As an aside, I realized during production that it's somewhat ironic doing an audio-only podcast on something that really needs to be seen to be fully appreciated. But that's where Tim Turnus comes in. Tim is the director of the St. John's Bible Project at the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library on the campus of St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota. The St. John's Bible is a monumental illuminated manuscript that was commissioned by St. John's Abbey and University in Collegeville, Minnesota by the Benedictine community. And what they did was they chose to commission the handwriting of a Bible as it would have been done centuries ago but making not a medieval Bible, but a Bible for the 21st century. And they did this to commemorate or to mark the millennium. So St. John's Abbey University commissioned Donald Jackson, world-renowned calligrapher and scribe to the House of Lords, to put together a team of artists. And this team of artists would work for 15 years to create this one single work of art, the St. John's Bible. Tim says they often get asked, why in the world would you spend time and effort on something so ridiculous when you can get a free copy of the Bible in any hotel room drawer? Well, 
There are many answers, Tim says. And I think the best answer comes from one of our monks. When he was asked point blank, why would you do something like this? He looked at him and said, because we didn't have to. And that says a lot about why this project was done. It, it doesn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense. Tim called the project monumental. That's not just because of the amount of work that went into it, but the sheer size of the book. The pages are two feet tall. When opened, the Bible is three feet wide. The reason for its large size is because it's intended to be a communal book. It's not designed to be a personal book. It's designed to be a book used and shared and enjoyed by many. And that really is the definition of community. As you can probably tell already, there is a lot of information to unpack about this Bible. We're only going to get to a fraction of everything in this relatively short podcast. So to begin, let's answer one of the most basic questions in regards to the Bible. Which translation do you use? This is not a new translation of the Bible, word-wise. It is a new visual translation, but not words. And again, we wanted this to be as widely used as possible. But we wanted the translation to be literal. We wanted it to be scholarly. We wanted it to be inclusive. We are Roman Catholics, so of course we wanted something that we could use. So it ha- and it had to be the complete Bible, all 73 books, Old and New Testament. And so with all those things in mind, the committee chose to go with the new revised standard version, or commonly known as the NRSV. And that was chosen because it is literal, it is scholarly, it's in a beautiful translation. But for our purposes, the main reason we chose it is because the NRSV has the distinction of being one of the very few translations of the Bible in English that is officially approved by almost every major Christian church worldwide. You might also be wondering why the St. John's Bible is called an illuminated manuscript. Tim explains. You know, the word illuminated or the word illumination really kind of has gone the way of the word icon nowadays. And the word icon doesn't have the meaning that it used to have. Illumination is the play of light on the precious metals as you turn the page. That's what it means to illuminate a manuscript. So the St. John's Bible uses um, 24 karat gold, silver, and platinum. And when you open the book, the light hits those pages, and basically you are illuminated. Your face is lit by the words, by the imagery. So that's the traditional meaning of the word illumination. In the modern day, illumination is also often used to reference an illustration or a picture. But you can't think of the artworks in the St. John's Bible as illustrations. There's nothing didactic about them. There's nothing really pictorial about them. They're not illustrating the Bible. The artworks are designed to serve as kind of visual spiritual meditations designed to invite you in. Hopefully you'll bring others with you, so that idea of community, to illuminate, to bring light to your own thinking. So think of it that way. It's important to remember that the St. John's Bible is a modern Bible done with ancient techniques, tools, and materials. I asked him to describe one of the 160-plus illuminations in the St. John's Bible that shows some of that modernity. He described the illumination of Christ's family tree at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Well, that beautifully told passage is brought to life visually by creating Christ's family tree superimposed on a menorah-like structure. That menorah structure then comes down and has at its base the words Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. But along with that, this beautiful rendition of the family tree also represents how we think about genealogy in the modern world. So that beautiful imagery with all of its gold work and the names of the family tree in this menorah 
is laid on top of a bed of DNA strands. So these beautiful DNA strands make the entire background, kind of signifying that, you know, as Christians, we believe that Christ was divine, so it's filled with gold and lushness, but we also believe he was human. And what's more human than our DNA? And those DNA strands will place the Bible in our time period in a thousand years from now. So if we lose this Bible and someone digs it up and they find that page a thousand years from now, when they see that DNA strand, they, know, they will know, ah, this Bible was made with medieval techniques, but it couldn't have been made until we understood that. And there are other elements in the various illuminations that place the Bible in our times. There are some microscopic blow-ups of different viruses and diseases when we talk about images of hell. We've got in the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, there's the modern cavalry of the tanks in front of the oil fields. And then the, the, the gospel book ends with a beautiful image of our world from outer space. Again, 500 years ago, the last time a book like this was written by hand, that image could never be there. And those are just a few examples of imagery that brings the book into our time period and beyond. Okay, a modern Bible might sound nice, but why use medieval techniques? Tim says simply because it lasts longer. For example, the paper used in modern books lasts 30 to 40 years before it starts to break down. The artists wanted communities in 500 or 1,000 years to also use this piece of art and to read the very same words you and I can read today. In other words, Tim says they didn't want to recreate the past, but there's simply still no better way than those old methods to make this book last. So this Bible was written on calfskin vellum, so basically leather that will last for centuries. If you think about it, parts of the Dead Sea Scrolls are written on something very similar, and that lasted for a long time and wasn't even that well cared for. And they wrote the letters, the the millions of letters, with a turkey, swan, or goose quill. Again, not to recreate the past, but because that quill conforms to your hand and becomes a part of the artist. If they had used a metal pen, their hand would conform to it. And if you're going to write for seven years, don't you want the most comfortable tool in your hand you can possibly have? Along with that, they used very traditional inks. So the inks for the St. John's Bible were made in the 1870s. And they, the black ink is made out of soot, candle smoke. Candle smoke from the 1870s mixed with honey and egg white and then solidified by baking it into a stick. And they grind that stick on a stone, add some water, and you get rich, pure, carbon black lettering that will last for centuries. Now, I need to share something in full disclosure. What is on display here in St. Louis for the rest of 2017 is not the original manuscript of the St. John's Bible, nor is it the entire Bible. The entire original manuscript is about 1,130 pages and weighs about 300 pounds. It would be impossible to showcase it around the world and still make it last for centuries. So the original remains in Minnesota, What we have on display here is one volume of a fine art lithograph copy of the original manuscript called the Heritage Edition. Only 299 of these copies were created. Some have been purchased by museums or schools, while some travel the world. The Heritage Edition is divided into seven volumes, and we currently have the volume containing the Gospels and the Book of Acts. And what this does is it allows you to experience the St. John's Bible as a book as an object, as a sense of wow and wonder. Because even if you come to St. John's, you will not see it as a book. It is unbound at this time. So what you get here by coming to view these pages is 
you get that, that visceral experience of walking almost into the Bible. This thing is massive. I mean, you've, you've never probably read a Bible this big. You'll also get that feeling of reading the words. And as you read the words, they, they, they compel you to read them, much more than a printed font. This is a handwritten script. And they, they draw you in because it's a very engaging experience to read these words and to realize they're written by hand. And as the calligrapher said, say, every letter on those pages started in their toes and came out their fingers. And it also encourages you to read the Bible with your whole body because you're bending over it, you're moving. It's not like holding this little book in your hand. It's a very different, engaging, captivating experience. And then you turn the page and your eyes fall on these artworks and your whole body changes. So it's a, I can't even begin to describe the difference in reading this Bible as, as opposed to almost any other one. Now, Tim is the expert. It's his job to talk up the St. John's Bible. But what about the average person? I talked with a few attendees at a recent event with the St. John's Bible to get a different perspective. Here's Mary Bast, an English and Russian studies major at St. Louis University. It's so unique and um, I don't know, I just, I love the purples and blues together and it just, there's like really no words for it, if that makes sense. <laughs> it leaves you speechless. I mean, it does, it leaves you speechless. Like the word I would use is breathtaking. It's um, just, it, it really makes you take a step back and realize like the, the splendor of God and like, it, it's like you're, you're, God is both immediate and transcendent at the same time with the Bible, so, yeah. yeah. It's not just opening your, your average yeah. sort of Bible on your shelf. It's, yeah, exactly. It's an experience. It's an experience. That's a way of looking at it. I feel like it's something that would take time to process as well, and like like an art piece, you come to it at different points and get different things from it, but I feel like the Bible's kind of like that anyway, where you, you, know, you come at different points in your life, and different verses can mean different things. Mary said her favorite illumination was the nativity scene in the Gospel of Luke. And because of her interest in Russian studies, she also appreciated some of the illuminations that resembled icons. But that wasn't all that got her attention. One of, one of the nuns at a, at a summer camp I used to go to taught me calligraphy. So I was very much able to appreciate the level of detail that went into it. I don't know how they, it just takes such patience. And I don't know how they were able to keep the lines straight. And just I can't even imagine working on it for that number of years. Why should somebody come out to see this? Um, to encounter God, um, to see the history, um, the living history of the Bible, um, to see how it resonates throughout the ages, um, how God is outside of time, and this kind of encapsulates how that is out, how God is outside of time, and you just encounter beauty, and that's part of God. Remember John Davis, the Our Lady of Providence parishioner we heard at the very beginning of this episode? With him was his wife, Susan. I asked her what she thought. Excellent. Very, very inspirational. Uh, the artwork is just fascinating. The calligraphy, how all the colors, the figures, how modernistic it is. And at the same time, it shows the spiritual side of things. It was very, very good. Presentation was very educational. You've probably heard of the Lexio Divina method for contemplating scripture. Well, the illuminations of the St. John's Bible make possible a Visio Divina. One of the things that I really liked is the exercise that he gave us to look at a picture and then describe what you thought, gave us a few minutes to meditate to see what you thought about it, and then shared with your neighbor the thoughts and then had the group discussions. You see your own perspective on things and then with sharing with the whole group, you see other perspectives, and that was very inspirational.
John and Susan each took something different away from the experience of seeing the St. John's Bible in person. It got me thinking about how small and little we are in the face of the macro picture that it takes um, a combination of talent and if we could take all that energy and put it in a positive way, what we can accomplish in our world today. What, what I felt was excitement and to think about the beauty of God and how we are creatures of God and to radiate and show that beauty in our daily life. Beauty. That's an essential component of the St. John's Bible. Beauty doesn't happen by accident, though. In the case of the St. John's Bible, its beauty started in the mind of Donald Jackson. Here's Tim Turnus again. Donald Jackson is considered by most to be one of the, the world's foremost Western scribes. He has made his living being a calligrapher. He is, by profession, the senior scribe of the House of Lords. So he's, in, in common language, he's Queen Elizabeth's calligrapher. Donald is a master. He, is, he takes something you can do. You can make a letter, you can write, and he turns it into an art form. Donald Jackson came to St. John's Abbey University in Minnesota in the 80s as part of a calligraphy conference. He fell in love with the place, and he had this dream of handwriting the Bible, you know, something calligraphers have done for centuries. And he knew he wanted to do it. He wanted to do it ever since he was a child. And when he came to St. John's and he saw the place and he experienced how the monastic community worked and felt about things and, and their vision, he knew he'd found a partner. And so he chose us. This is not something we ever thought about doing or wanted to do. He came to us with the idea, and he approached us in 1995 and said, do you want to do it? Will you help me do it? Will you mark the millennium in this way? And we did. Now, Donald Jackson had the talent, and he had our support, but what he did not have was the time. He was in his 50s when he started this, so he had to put together a team. So Donald Jackson served as the artistic director, and he found 22 other people to help him do this project. So if you think about this, another reason to come and see it is because 23 people worked on this single artwork for 15 years. That's pretty amazing as well. And that team of artists hailed from Wales, England, Scotland, and the United States. They used inks from China, quills from Minnesota, and vellum from the United Kingdom. Those elements, and many more, truly make this an international work in a way that is only possible in the modern world. This project, really, the way it was done, could not have happened really before now because you have all these disparate parts from around the world and the huge thing that held us all together was we were able to communicate through email and eventually through Skype. And so this is the world's first communal book done via Skype <laughs> as well. So. In closing, Tim says they hope the St. John's Bible is a catalyst for creating community. When people come to see the St. John's Bible, our hope is that you are so taken by it that you can't wait to bring somebody else to see it. The main reason we did this was that it can be used. It needs to be shared. And the legacy of the St. John's Bible will not be the fact that Donald Jackson and his team of artists and St. John's and Collegeville, Minnesota made it. The legacy of the St. John's Bible will be what you choose to do with it. And that's what we want to have happen. We want you, the people, we want the community to use it, embrace it, and enjoy it. Make sure to visit archstl.org Bible to find out more about the St. John's Bible and find a time and location where you can go see it yourself. You're listening to the Catholic Gateway Podcast.
We hope you enjoyed hearing about the St. John's Bible. Now you'll have to go see it in person for yourself. Remember, archstl.org slash Bible is where you can find information and see events coming up throughout the remainder of 2017. Coming up, we have an interview with the St. Louis Review's summer photo intern, Catherine Zizig. We'll talk to her about covering the recent Walk of Trust on May 28th. But first, let's take a look at some of the people and events making news around the Archdiocese of St. Louis for the week of June 5th, 2017. Four men were ordained to the priesthood on May 27th at the Cathedral Basilica. Reverend Michael Lampy, Reverend Peter Feimega, Reverend Clark Philip, and Reverend John Schneier received the Sacrament of Holy Orders in culmination of several years of rigorous study and spiritual development at Kenrick Glennon Seminary. Please offer a prayer for these men as they begin their priestly service. On Thursday, June 1st, Archbishop Carlson was honored with the Luminary Award for Criminal Justice at the Criminal Justice Ministries Inaugural Recognition Dinner. The award was in recognition of the assistance and advocacy provided by the Archdiocese of St. Louis since the founding of the Criminal Justice Ministry in 1979. The mission of the Criminal Justice Ministry is to improve the safety and well-being of individuals affected by crime and the criminal justice system, their families, and their communities in the greater St. Louis area through person-to-person assistance rooted in Jesus Christ's message of love, reconciliation, and hope. On May 25th, our very own Joe Kenny from the St. Louis Review was recognized by Empower Missouri with an award in recognition of his extensive coverage of social justice issues. Congratulations to Joe. The Tese Pilgrimage of Trust took place the weekend of May 26th through 29th, as you've already heard mention of. Archbishop Carlson and other faith and community leaders led the hundreds gathered for events throughout the weekend, including the Walk of Trust on Sunday, May 28th. The mission of the walk was to take the first step to help heal divisions in the community. Kenrick Lennon Seminary invites you to join them for Father's Week, a week-long social media campaign to honor priests in anticipation of Father's Day. During the week of June 12th through 18th, you can show appreciation for your spiritual fathers by encouraging vocations, personally thanking priests, and sharing stories through the seminary's social media platforms. To learn how you can participate, visit kenrick.edu slash fathersweek. A healing mass to honor all who have been affected by breast cancer will take place on Saturday, June 10th at St. Mary Magdalene in Brentwood. Mass will begin at 9.30 a.m. Survivors, friends, and family members of anyone who has been affected are welcome. You can find more information at stlrespectlife.org. Now here are the five quintessential stories from the St. Louis Review, handpicked by the staff for you to share and discuss this week. You can find these stories at stlouisreview.com slash five things or in the paper dated June 5th through 11th, 2017. The Chaminade Lacrosse team surprised others this year with strong play throughout the season. Their loss in the title game failed to dampen spirits. Joe Kenny reports. As I mentioned earlier, four men were ordained to the priesthood on May 27th. Dave Luking and Lisa Johnston provide great coverage of this happy occasion. And in related news, the annual listing of new priest appointments, one of the review's most anticipated features, is included this week. These appointments are effective as of June 27, 2017, unless otherwise noted. The entire list is in print and online. The mother of one of the victims of an attack on a group of Coptic Christians that took place May 26th attended a funeral at the Sacred Family Church in Minya, Egypt that same day. 
A priest says Christians in Egypt are getting to this idea that we could be a martyr at any moment. Read more in the Nation and World section of this week's review. And finally, more than 500 people participated in the Walk of Trust Sunday, May 28th. The walk was part of the weekend-long St. Louis Pilgrimage of Trust and was intended to be a first step toward healing deep divisions in the community that have surfaced since the unrest in Ferguson. In just a moment, we'll hear a little more about the Walk of Trust from St. Louis Review summer photo intern Catherine Zizig. There's a look at what is taking place around the Archdiocese of St. Louis. For these stories and more, visit stlouisreview.com. That's stlouisreview.com and archstl.org. Remember to engage with the Archdiocese of St. Louis and the St. Louis Review on Twitter and Facebook for up-to-the-minute updates, photos, and more. We're also both on Instagram. Now let's continue with the Catholic Gateway Podcast. So the Taize Pilgrimage of Trust was held in St. Louis uh, now a couple weeks ago, a couple weekends ago as we're recording this podcast episode. Uh, It's already June, can you believe it? Uh, So the Walk of Trust, the Pilgrimage of Trust, uh, including the Walk of Trust, was held the weekend of Memorial Day uh, back uh, at the end of May, May 26th through 28th. And um, we have now in the studio then to talk a little bit about that, someone special, special guest, first time on the podcast, uh, uh, our St. Louis Review intern, Catherine Zizig. Hello. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> no problem. You're not too nervous, are you? A <laughs> little bit. <laughs> so, Catherine, uh, just quickly tell us about, uh, about you and, and uh, why you're here. Well, my name is Catherine Zizig. I am from Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up there, and I currently am a junior at Western Kentucky University. Cool. Which is the uh, alma mater of our distinguished uh, director of publications, Teak Phillips. He's also a Western Kentucky Hilltopper. Yeah. So uh, he's a little partial, I guess, when the Western Kentucky <laughs> uh, students send their applications in for uh, for internships. So he, uh, you know, <laughs> we're not going to say anything more about that. We'll just. <laughs> what are you trying to say? So, and we also won't talk about hockey. I know your hockey team's playing tonight, yeah. and uh, you're a little nervous about that, right? A little bit. Really um, excited. Yeah. Well, we're a little a little sore here about our. St. Louis Blues losing to Nashville a little while back, so we won't we won't get into hockey in this episode. What I really <laughs> wanted to talk about, though, was like I said, the Pilgrimage of Trust and the Walk of Trust, because you were there covering it, and you got mm-hmm. a front page picture here on the St. Louis Review, uh, the edition uh, June fifth through June eleventh, and um, uh, a picture, a really a very neat picture on the front page, and a couple pictures inside. Mm-hmm. Um, just tell us a little bit about what it was like to be there for the Walk of Trust, and, and kind of what you saw. Um, what else was there that really caught your attention? Oh, well, it was a lot going on all at once, and it was really neat arriving there and seeing everyone just kind of talking and congregated in front of the cathedral before. But once the walk started, it was really neat to walk alongside people or kind of be on the outside um, and just hear what they were talking about and sort of listen in on a few different conversations. But it was just neat, like hearing these people they were obviously meeting for the first time and just sharing their life stories and sharing their hopes and like ideas about what this walk would do and it was just really interesting to hear and then about the picture on the front page the little girl with the dog and the girl sitting on the steps um it was an aunt and niece that lived lived in the house and they were on their way to take their dog for a walk and they saw the people going by so they just decided to sit and talk and waved to the people going by, and the dog was really excited to see people, and the kids 
loved it, but it was just really neat to see the walkers engage with the community and not just kind of walk through. It was neat to actually see something happening. Yeah. So they were engaging then with people in the community mm-hmm. that they just happened to encounter, yeah. but they were also engaging amongst themselves, right? The people walking, people, like you said, who hadn't met each other before. Right. Um, I believe there were a lot of out-of-town people, right, who there came were. in and wanted to show sort of solidarity with the St. Louis community. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about anything like that? Did you hear sort of some conversations of people from out of town talking to St. Louisans or anything? Yeah. Well, one um, family I met, there was uh, a mother and her two kids. I think they came from Wisconsin, maybe Michigan, but um, they had been doing some Taze things up there because her husband um, is involved there. Um, And it's been a while since I talked to them, but they made the drive down and had been participating all weekend long. And I thought it was really cool to see that someone would come such a far way to engage with a different community and mm-hmm. help bring them together instead of just focusing on their area. Yeah, but I, I guess it shows that, uh, you know, obviously the reason why we had the Pilgrimage of Trust here was because of the events in Ferguson, mm-hmm. and we wanted to try to help heal St. Louis and the community uh, and the region. But it obviously shows that that went beyond St. Louis. Obviously, we mm-hmm. know the national media covered extensively. It was an international story. Uh, people then around the country, I think, really felt uh, a connection to it and, and wanted that uh, wanted to help address some of those issues, I think. And so having people come from out of town was kind of cool. Um, so it started at the cathedral, and you hit a couple of way, uh, stops along the way. Mm-hmm. And you're not familiar with so St. I'm Louis, I know. So I'm very new right. here, so I don't know all the street names and exactly where we went. But I know we went from the cathedral and ended up at Chaffetz Arena at Slew, mm-hmm. but we took a very roundabout way. Um, I up know to we Del Mar. Went, we went to Del Mar, yes. And, and Del Mar down. is the... the uh, for anyone maybe who's listening who doesn't know, uh, in St. Louis is, is considered sort of the uh, socioeconomic and racial dividing line. That's mm-hmm. It's the Del Mar Divide is what they've called it uh, yeah. over the years. And so north of Del Mar is uh, a, a black community, uh, predominantly black and, and uh, lower socioeconomic status uh, for whatever reason. And south is, is uh, maybe a little higher socioeconomic status and uh, greater white population. So that's how it's been. Um, so... It was important then to go to Del Mar and go to that divide, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, but you stopped. There were, there were a couple stops at some other religious locations. Yes. Right? Um, the Daughters of Charity, I believe, um, was one of the stops. And people gave speeches there, and people got water and food and just kind of had a chance to take a rest. But um, it was very neat to see them come together at a, one little place, and then they would head out. And along the way, they would sing different hymns and all come together, but um, that was the first time I saw the Del Mar divide. I didn't know it was a thing, and I didn't, I hadn't heard about it, and hearing the people on the walk and then the people on the streets talk about it and talk about how night and day the differences were between this one line was crazy, and seeing it was, it was sad, and it was, it was very interesting to see. Mm -hmm. Kind of eye-opening and Mm -hmm. and, uh, very dramatic, I guess, to see that there is a line in, in our community that divides people. And it's Definitely. kind of uh, unfortunate that it exists. Um, and then at the arena, there was a prayer service, a Taze prayer service that was held, mm-hmm. uh, obviously uh, with a lot of the, the songs, the, the very um, uh, well-known Taze songs that they sing and, and everything. So how, what was that like uh, to, to be there for that and to see sort of the experience of a Taze prayer service? It was really neat. I really liked the range of songs they kind of did. They did some really upbeat ones, some more somber just prayerful really reflective yeah yeah yeah. Uh and it was neat to see the different ways people 
prayed in that kind of way. Um, people, some people were crying. Some people were sitting down or laying down on the floor and kind of just with themselves. Or some people were interacting around them and singing with the people that were right next to them. And it was just very, it was a beautiful atmosphere to be a part of and see and kind of get to take a step back and mm-hmm. look at it. So if anybody's interested in, in learning more about this or, or recapping the Walk of Trust and the Pilgrimage of Trust, Make sure to check out the June 5th through 11th St. Louis Review. It's also online at stlouisreview.com. That's stlouisreview.com. Uh, I also did a podcast on the Pilgrimage of Trust, talking to Brother Emil, who's one of the Tose brothers who came into town to help organize it all. I did an episode with him back oh, a few months ago. I can't remember exactly which episode. So check it out on our uh, podcast feed, either on SoundCloud, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. It's all there, and you can find that. And you, Catherine, are on social media, right? People can follow yes. you. Um, I have an Instagram. It's Kay's Isaac Photo, but then I also have a Twitter. Okay. Not super active there, but you can follow me there. But too. Instagram, obviously you're a photographer, so yeah, I want to get the photos out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, can you, how, how do you spell Zizig for those who oh. <laughs> might, might want to have some help finding you on, on Instagram? Mm-hmm. So it's Zizig, Z like zebra, E, wait. Yeah, no, I panicked. I was really nervous and forgot <laughs> how to spell my own You misspelled your own name. name. Oh, my goodness. Z-I-E-S-I-G. Z-I-E-S-I-G. Yep. Okay. Zizig. <laughs> All right. So on Instagram, Catherine Zizig. Go find her, and you'll see some photos of her as she's here in St. Louis through the summer months and uh, before she heads back to western Kentucky. So, Catherine, thanks for coming in. Yeah, I hope, of course. And sorry for making you too nervous. It's okay. This is part of the experience <laughs> of being an intern. <laughs> so... This is something that now you've been on your first podcast. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catholic Gateway Podcast. We always welcome story tips and ideas for the podcast. Just send them to communications at archstl.org. That's communications at archstl.org. Make sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with what's going on here in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Archdiocese of St. Louis. We're on Twitter, at ArchSTL is our handle there, at ArchSTL. And we're on Instagram, at CatholicSTL. And you should follow the St. Louis Review. They're on Facebook, also Twitter and Instagram, under the handle, at St. Louis Review. That's S.T. Lewis Review. The Catholic Gateway Podcast is a production of the Archdiocese of St. Louis. I'm your host, Gabe Jones. We hope you'll join us again next time here in the Gateway to the West, the Rome of the West, Catholic St. Louis. Catholic St. Louis.